You're listening to the N2K Space Network. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. We're keeping an eye on the weather over Kourou, French Guiana. High winds kept the last launch of the Ariane 5 rocket grounded yesterday, which was a bittersweet delay. So fingers crossed for better conditions today and a favorable final flight for the last Ariane 5. T-minus 20 seconds to LOS T-dress. Today is July 5th, 2023. I'm Maria Farmazis, and this is T-Minus. So long and thanks for all the fish, Arian 5. Space ethics in the spotlight this fall at CNES. SpaceX and the FAA seek a case dismissed. SmartSat of Australia developing AI-powered spacecraft, and much more. And my interview today is with Rob Adlard, CEO of Gravity Lab. He walks me through microgravity services, short-duration space access, and the growth of the UK space sector. Stay with us. Let's take a look at our Intel briefing for this Wednesday. The Ariane 5 was delayed again. The July 4th final flight was scrubbed due to high upper winds, so ESA's trying again no earlier than about 5.30 p.m. Eastern time tonight. If the Ariane 5 successfully launches tonight, it'll send two communication satellites, one for Germany and another for France's military, to geostationary orbit. And that will be the last time we ever see an Ariane 5 rocket fly, and it'll be a good while until we see another Ariane rocket fly at all. But it won't be the last time we see an Ariane rocket on the launch pad. Oh no, in fact, we've already seen the new Ariane 6, still in development, on the pad as of late June. The European Space Agency released images of the Ariane 6 rocket on the launch pad ahead of engine tests. This new rocket, which has been under development since the early 2010s, is slated to offer lower-cost space access than its outgoing predecessor, the Ariane 5. It has a full docket of launch contracts and customer payloads once it gets up and running, including many new Galileo satellites for one thing. But the first launch of the Ariane 6, which was initially planned for 2020, is now expected in the second quarter of 2024 at the earliest. So after, hopefully, today's final flight of the Ariane 5, It is going to be a little while for the next Ariane rocket. And we should mention a quick update to a related story that we covered last Friday. ESA's Euclid telescope successfully launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida, from a SpaceX Falcon 9 on Saturday. Euclid was meant to fly aboard the Ariane 6, or a Soyuz, but, well, 
One's been delayed and the other is no longer an option due to the war in Ukraine. Regardless, Euclid is now starting its multi-month journey to L2 to hunt for dark matter. I'm sure Webb will appreciate the company. Keeping with European space for a bit, France's space agency, CNES, has formed a Space Mission Ethics Committee in response to growing privatization in the space sector. The committee, which is composed of four permanent members from diverse backgrounds, will advise CNES on ethical issues related to space activities, particularly concerning the new space industry. CNES explains this a little bit more in a press release, saying this, In the context of privatization and opening of the space sector to new actors, the committee will seek to favor the right balance between cooperation, competition, sovereignty, and responsibility by following the principles of international space law resulting from the United Nations Treaty of 1967, while taking into account respect for terrestrial and planetary environments and the interests of future generations. Their work is set to start in fall 2023. Moving over to the United States now, in the ongoing SpaceX Boca Chica launch site drama, yes, there's an update now. In a court filing submitted on Friday, SpaceX and the FAA are seeking dismissal of a lawsuit filed by environmental and tribal groups alleging inadequate environmental studies at the Boca Chica launch site. The plaintiffs seek to revoke SpaceX's FAA license, which was suspended after the first full Starship Super Heavy launch test in April. For its part, SpaceX denies endangering wildlife or the community, asserting that it complied with FAA mitigation requirements. The firm is working towards another Starship launch later this year, having just conducted a static fire test for Starship 25 last week, while fixes and updates to Starbase itself continue apace. That said, a ruling in the plaintiff's favor could significantly delay SpaceX's Starship Super Heavy program. Now, lots of rocket news today, but let's take a look at satellites now. SmartSat, which is a consortium of universities and other research organizations funded by the Australian government, has initiated a 7 million three-year project dubbed Scarlet Alpha, aiming to develop AI-powered autonomous spacecraft. Partners in the endeavor include Airbus, Ascension, Deakin University, Defense Science and Technology Group, Leonardo Australia, Saab Australia, Swinburne University of Technology, and the University of South Australia. The project will focus on enhancing onboard processing, small spacecraft resilience, constellation resources optimization, and real-time tasking. The resulting AI algorithms will allow spacecraft to make independent decisions and adapt to evolving situations in orbit without Earth's intervention. And it's not just pixel noise and extraneous communications data that astronomers are concerned about when it comes to satellites in LEO. There are new growing concerns now that unintended electromagnetic radiation from LEO constellations, including Starlink, are adding noise to protective VHF bands used by astronomers. In a new study in Astronomy and Astrophysics Journal, Cis Bassa from Astron, the Netherlands Institute for Radio Astronomy, writes this. With LOFAR, we detected radiation between 110 and 188 MHz from 47 out of the 68 satellites that were observed. This frequency range includes a protected band between 150.05 and 153 MHz specifically allocated to radio astronomy by the ITU. While terrestrial equipment is required to not cause interference with other devices, SpaceX is not violating any rules here as there are no such interference regulations for equipment on orbit. 
But for its part, SpaceX is working with the astronomers who worked on this study, and the company has begun making changes to its future Starlink satellites to hopefully mitigate this issue. But certainly, the broader issue of the regulatory gap in space equipment causing interference is something to keep an eye on. Global IT and business consulting firm CGI has pledged 2.6 million pounds to the University of Leicester's Manufacturing, Engineering, Technology, and Earth Observation Research Center, or Meteor, to enable research that uses CGI's Geodata360 platform to manage and visualize Earth observation and geospatial data. The collaboration aims to drive research around climate change solutions, promoting sustainability, and developing low-carbon business models. Now, let's switch over to some military space news now. In an internal Space Force memo reviewed by Breaking Defense, Space Force Chief of Space Operations General Chance Saltzman emphasized that the force's mission includes operating in space to defend terrestrial joint forces from adversaries' space-enabled attacks, not merely to protect U.S. satellites. This reflects a shift in mindset recognizing new space threats while not explicitly endorsing the development of offensive space weapons. The, quote, logic of space superiority includes both defensive and offensive strategies aligned with current military doctrine across all services. This shift suggests a more forward-leading stance by the Space Force amid ongoing development of its doctrine and increased budgetary requests for potential offensive and threat-defeating tools. It also puts the theory of space superiority more in line with Alfred Thayer Mahan's 19th century treatise on sea power and maritime supremacy, which, if you didn't know, because I sure didn't, it's still a driving concept behind the U.S. Navy's grand strategy today. Today I learned. New York-based iRocket just won an additional $1.8 million for its Phase II Cyber contract with the U.S. Space Force. The funding will go towards a full-duration static fire test of the engine for its Shockwave reusable launch vehicle. iRocket's reusable engine, which is currently in testing, uses a combination of liquid oxygen and methane and produces 35,000 pounds of thrust. The company says this engine will enable the Shockwave to immediately land and reuse both the rocket's first and second stages, as well as the payload fairing. There's a high amount of interest in this launch vehicle from a national security perspective, as you might imagine, says iRocket, and adds that the shockwave will be ready to launch in 2027. The Defense Innovation Unit, or DIU, is seeking commercial solutions for precise point-to-point delivery of small-to-medium cargo payloads through space, with the goal of supporting remote operations and reconstituting space-based capabilities rapidly, according to a solicitation released by the organization on June 30th. This strategy, which is part of the tactically responsive space concept, could find use in times of crisis and disaster response. And a story filed by our Earth Observation is Super Important desk. Recent satellite images reveal a potential military-style camp in Belarus, which may be housing members of the Wagner Mercenary Group. Built in the last two weeks, the camp was allegedly offered as refuge to Wagner mercenaries by Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. Up to 8,000 fighters may be deployed in the camp, prompting Ukraine to strengthen its border with Belarus. And speaking of Earth observation, over the weekend, UMETSAT shared a first glimpse of lightning strike images taken from its new Meteosat-12 weather satellite, which will be observing Europe and Africa. Meteosat-12 was launched in December, and it's still in testing and not fully commissioned yet, but the images from it so far are pretty impressive. 
We've got links to the new images in our show notes, which you can find at space.n2k.com. And we've included a few extra stories in the selected reading section of the show notes for you today. The first is a piece from the New York Times about India's space economy. Now, we've been covering India's growing new space sector for a few months now, including our deep space interview with Namrata Goswami. While this story doesn't provide any net new intel, it has done wonders for our ego that the New York Times is a month behind T-minus on this particular topic. And the second is an article from Defense One about China's commercial space ventures. Apparently, U.S. DOD officials are concerned. And that should come as no surprise to anyone, but it's important to pay attention to what these officials say and their strategic positioning. Our read is that mill-to-mill relationships between the U.S. and China are unfortunately severely strained, and that's not a good thing for maintaining a peaceful space environment. And that's it for our Intel briefing for today. Stay tuned for my interview with Gravity Lab CEO Rob Adlard coming up next. And hey, T-Minus crew, if you find our podcast useful, please do us a favor and share a five-star rating and a short review in your favorite podcast app. It'll help other space professionals like you to find the show and join the T-Minus crew. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. For our interview today, let's take a closer look at the fascinating and fast-growing space sector of microgravity services and short-duration space access. And today's guest is the perfect person to walk us through it. I'm a co-founder and CEO and technical director of Gravity Lab Aerospace Services. We are a research and testing services company offering access to um, short-duration space access and microgravity. It's for testing and qualification, fundamental research, all kinds of different industries access our services in order to either develop new products and services or answer fundamental questions about physics. Let's just dive right into that. So let's talk about short-duration access to microgravity. So I think our listeners may or may not understand what the importance of microgravity is for certain industries. Maybe we can start there, and then also why specifically short duration? What's the benefit there? All right. So, so firstly, uh, I am not a scientist. I am just an engineer. But what, but what I know and I understand about microgravity is that there are actually a surprisingly limited number of uh, kind of environments which are delivered through microgravity, and that's an absence of buoyancy, sedimentation, hydrostatic pressure. 
those things in turn have an effect on the sort of fundamental kind of scientific effects which occur and affect absolutely everything in our universe. Some of those effects are observable prior to accessing microgravity. Some of them are only observable in microgravity. One of the easiest ways um, maybe to understand it, um, if you have a bit, of a bit of a maths brain, is that if you imagine that you, are, you have an equation which governs the bit of physics you're looking at and gravity is on the denominator, if you're effectively making that zero, then you're dividing by zero, which is going to give you theoretically infinite results. And so it's going to completely transform what you're looking at. Uh, and that either enables a validation of a mathematical model or um, enables genuinely new discovery. So the implications are, um, so there are kind of two sort of aspects to, to our services. One is that there's fundamental research going on, okay? And one of the kind of easiest, so this isn't particularly the thing what we're doing because it's to do with human spaceflight, but one of the easiest ways to, to look at it is through this conundrum that um, astronauts experience macular degeneration when they're on the ISS. And when they come back down to Earth, the body heals itself. So they, they generally, unless they've been up there for a very long time, they don't have long duration effects of that. There's no cure for macular degeneration. But if we can understand that process, what happens in microgravity and then what happens afterwards, then you know th there's a lot in there that will give people a lot of hope for cures in the future. And so that's just one example of this tiny, tiny microcosm of the enormous question and answer. Uh, and then in addition to that, of course, it's an environment that we're deploying lots of satellites and sensors and all kinds of other things. It's a very challenging environment. And so there's just a fundamental sort of testing the qualification process for all that sort of hardware, which is about being more sustainable with the way that we use space. Mm, okay. So can you walk me through how Gravity Lab does that? So, I mean, uh, there are, uh, microgravity is of interest to many different companies, but I'd love to know about your company's approach. One of the big things that we're doing is we are doing kind of a, a new take on a suborbital vehicle. Now, suborbital vehicle, suborbital rocket, it goes into space for a period of time and comes back down. Those were the first rockets created that sort of, you know, got a legacy of 100 years. Um, but nobody's really done like a, what I call a new space treatment of a suborbital rocket in the way that SpaceX has kind of reimagined and redone the way that we do um, commercial space transportation for an, in an orbital sense. So we're doing that. But what we've actually done is taken sort of a holistic look at microgravity services, the microgravity market, and try to look at how we can address kind of different ends of it. And in a way, we try to be kind of agnostic about what the vehicle is. So, you know, um, we're not a rocket company like Uber's not a taxi company. It's not trying to sell anyone, uh, you know, a, a Prius. It's provide. It's got this kind of an amazing sort of algorithm, which is utilizing the data to transform the way that transportation is delivered. We're trying to use the kind of data and scientific awareness um, to transform the, the way that microgravity um, research is delivered. So we have a couple of different things. So at the scale of a few seconds, we have a patented UAV system, which will give some initial data, which may be then a precursor to a suborbital flight, which will give, give several minutes uh, of a microgravity environment. And then our customers may go on to do other things. So they may then send something to the ISS, or they might then access future services with companies, Varda Space and Spaceforge, who are um, sending things for manufacture in orbit. So that's a part of that whole supply chain. That's really fascinating. I was going to say, how do you see your company in the context of, well, I would say the overall space sector, but also specifically I'm interested in the UK space sector because it, it, there's so much going on. You just mentioned Spaceforge, for example. Just fascinating growth happening there. I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you fit in there. It's a really exciting time. I mean, I don't want to be too parochial about it, but it is quite it is quite cool because there's, there's a lot of energy uh, in the UK right now in the space sector. And it's partly because the at a strategic level, the government knows that it needs to 
needs to do things in order to develop new tech sectors. Uh, we've got a now long-term productivity problem, which we're trying to solve. And the way to solve it is investment uh, in new technologies. So there's, there's a lot of interest in that. There's a lot of potential because the UK kind of got out of space quite a long time ago, even though we were the third nation to deploy a satellite in orbit. And then sort of recently trying to come back with a big, bit of a big bang. <laughs> so it's partly about, you know, sort of the world, is, the world has changed in so many ways. We've had COVID, we've had Brexit. And so the UK is kind of reimagining itself a little bit. But actually, the plans to, to gain a bigger chunk of the space sector dates back to 2000, um, 2006, I think. So it's, it's really quite a while ago now. But I think we've reached a tipping point where, the, where there are a lot of startups. The UK is only second to the US in terms of uh, investment in space. And of course, we're trying to kind of complete this um, the circle of the supply chain with not just building small satellites, but being able to qualify them uh, and then being able to de- deploy them in space as well, as well as uh, the government's ambitions to be a science superpower. So we kind of fit sort of somewhere in the in between those things, where we're helping qualify things for space. We're part of the launch story. We'll be launching from UK spaceports, um, but we're also kind of a big enabler for science. Mm, uh, that's fantastic. And if you can speak about it, what what is your long-term vision for your company? I know sometimes that's under wraps, but I'd really love to know uh, maybe your, your dreams, for lack of better terms. Yeah, so many dreams. So I think that um, the great thing about services is that, you know, um, again, if you're sort of slightly agnostic about how you're delivering those, then, you, you know, the, the, the golden strand um, that we have is sort of discovery uh, in a way. So, you know, they, there will not be an end to science. We're not going to have finished physics in a couple of years. That's just going to kind of go on and on and on. Uh, you know, there'll be more and more to discover and more and more to look at. You know, so we can produce. Uh, we could, well, we certainly with the, the vehicle that we're starting with is called Isaac, and it's a very small suborbital vehicle. It will have the lowest per launch cost in the world, which is about lowering the barrier for access. Okay, it will be much less half anything that exists right now. Once we've done that, then as the market scales and there's more involvement, um, obviously we'll build bigger vehicles which are more aligned to then sort of ESA and NASA requirements in terms of their scientific programs. And then we'll look, be looking at longer durations of microgravity uh, going from minutes to then possibly days, weeks, and months. So that's that's what I would say there. And, and part of that kind of big strand, is, of course, is that um, we are looking at not just the vehicles, but we're sort of we've got a virtually integrated approach with developing payloads. So one of the things that we have been doing recently is working with the University of Manchester and the Material Science Department to create a thermal conditioning module, which uh, I can't say too much about, but that's about sort of them, you know, doing some science uh, in a microgravity and space environment, and that module can then be sort of a ubiquitous way to do similar kinds of uh, of science, and we hope to kind of you know extrapolate that and roll that out in, in other industries so relating to bio, for example, pharma, so that we can help help these companies do that. So we're not just sort of doing the vehicle and then you know you have to do everything else on your own, developing the payload and helping you know make sure that our customers get the science done. The data they need is a big part of a service too. So I think another thing, as well as the science, which is the thing that we, you know, we're always really, really interested in, uh, it's the hardware qualifications. So at the moment, uh, it's sort of very um, seldom talked about. There's a very high interest in making space more sustainable and, and uh, avoiding space debris, but there's a very high failure rate of very small payload formats. The space sector is kind of not like the aerospace sector and automotive se- sector, where they're very big testing services companies. So in one sense, we are just a, a testing service company as well for the hardware. So we can deploy hardware in space and get it back again quickly. 
So I think, you know, forget about whether it's called a suborbital vehicle or whatever it is. If you said, you know, do you think it'd be useful to be able to put something to space really quickly and get it back the same day? Pretty much everybody would nod their head and say, yes, I'm sure there's great value in that. What have you invented? Well, no, it's just a suborbital vehicle, but a new take on that kind of fit for purpose for, I would say, space debris mitigation by doing the technical qualification, getting the hardware back before it's deployed in an orbital setting. We'll be right back. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Welcome back. Now here at T-Minus, we're pretty proud of our very, very excellent sound design, and it pains us to have to play audio where the mic is audibly buzzing from being overloaded, but we promise this is for a good reason. And that reason is hearing what it's like to put pace through its paces. (laughs) That was the U.S. Marine Band playing also Sprague Zarathustra very, very loudly in the NASA Goddard Acoustics Chamber, which is also where NASA's PACE, or Plankton Aerosol Cloud and Ocean Ecosystem spacecraft, went through its own acoustical testing this past spring. And acoustical testing, as you might have gathered, is extremely loud, And it's a test to see if and how well a spacecraft can withstand the sound vibrations from the extremely loud event known as a rocket launch. As a former band kid, I can attest that the idea of playing a whole bunch of great tunes from Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever, also Sprague's Zarathustra, to the themes from Jaws and Star Wars, that loudly in acoustic chamber just seems absolutely awesome. All 37 members of the band were wearing ear protection in case you were concerned. At their loudest, the band played at 116 decibels. Meanwhile, Pace was subjected to about 138 decibels. But this fun exercise wasn't just an exercise in loudness. In fact, the U.S. Marine Band came back to the acoustics chamber the next day, but outside of it this time, and gave a concert at a much more normal decibel level. In that concert, the U.S. Marine Band played the world premiere of the Pace Fanfare for Goddard employees. The Fanfare, which you're listening to now, is an original composition written by Gunnery Sergeant Scott Ninmer, which he wrote especially for the PACE mission. PACE will be launching in 2024, and its mission will be to study Earth's oceans from space.
And that's it for T-Minus for July 5th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of our podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karpf. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazes. Thanks for listening. T-minus.